Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, June 23rd, and today, Julia Yaffe joins me to talk about how the Russians who fled their country after the invasion of Ukraine are slowly, quietly returning home as the fears of economic ruin and moral objections to the war begin to fade. Everyday life in Russia is getting back to normal. Is this a win for Vladimir Putin? And later on, Ben Landy stops by to tell us what he's looking at in the Puck newsroom this week. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined by Julia Yaffe, who is fresh back from a luxurious European vacation. Just kidding. You're a journalist. It probably wasn't luxurious, but did you have a nice time? <laughs> <laughs> um, I did have a nice time. It was a bit of a working vacation, but you know, even if you're working in Italy, it's just better. It was great. That's awesome. I'm going to talk to you in a minute here about your latest on Russia and what's happening over there. But um, what do people in Europe think about the United States right now, just generally? So what the Europeans I talk to, what they think about the U.S. is like, what the hell are you guys doing over there? And, you know, I, I went on this trip for a friend's wedding. It was right after Uvalde. And people were like, why the fuck can't you guys get this under control? The shooting situation? The shooting situation. I had a weird experience the other night on Tuesday night. We went to see Top Gun in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And like 30 minutes into the movie, as... Miles Teller is like playing Great Balls of Fire on the piano or whatever in that bar scene. I'm smiling like I know what you're talking about, but I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Top Gun yet. Anyway, I'll get to the, the end of the story, though, which is we mm -hmm. didn't finish seeing Top Gun because a man in the second row of the movie theater, this is a scary story, 30 minutes into the movie, stands up and starts yelling incoherent, scary things that I won't repeat here. And immediately, two high school, college-age girls sitting in front of us in the theater, bolt out. Guy sits down. Again, this is like, imagine a shrouded in shadows man slowly yeah. standing up, turning around at a crowded movie theater and yelling. Then he does it again. And then we run out. 30 people run out into the lobby. Everyone's freaking out because yeah. 
Buffalo happened. Uvalde happened. Well, Aurora, Colorado happened. Yeah, totally. Aurora, like the most famous example. And it was just like, we were standing in the lobby, security came, people were freaking out. No one wanted to go back in. They escorted this guy out and he was a mentally ill person who was drinking, it turns out. He was able to walk into the movie theater. He had a full backpack on. It was remarkable how the first two people out of the theater were these like high school girls who had clearly had active shooter training. They bolted and... I texted my friends all of this. And like one of my buddies, you know, who has two little girls who just like, I don't think I want to be in this country. Like I'm like figuring out where I should move. And I think London's a good bet. But like the school shooting thing must yeah. be fucking bananas to people yeah. that live overseas. Yeah, it, it makes very little sense to people. I also have friends. I saw uh, some friends on this trip and on a previous trip who now live in Paris and London and in now Frankfurt. And at first, you know, it started off as like a fun trip that their work was going to pay for them to live there for a couple of years. And then after living there for a little while and then coming back home for holidays and just kind of watching the news, they're like, we are never fucking coming back. It is insane. Huh. You guys don't have health care. Our kids could get shot in schools. Your politics are absolutely insane. It looks so wild to them from their vantage point. America has obviously never been perfect or exceptional in the way that it's it's hallowed. But um, I remember when in 2008, I went to the UK for three days for a wedding and all the British folks at the time were like, Sarah Palin, fascinating. What is going on there? Like, but she was she was treated as as a like an aberration, a yeah, like something to point out out of curiosity. But it was never assumed that our democracy was in, in peril. So I just I don't know. I just haven't I haven't been to to Europe in a few years, so that's why. Oh, okay. Um, I was curious, but I promise you, uh, I'm going to change the subject to Russia, um, which is not unrelated to Europe, obviously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you, you wrote a really interesting piece on Puck this week called the, the Putin Apostates Come Home. When Putin invaded Ukraine in February, a lot of the cosmopolitan elites left or tried mm -hmm. to leave over different borders. A lot of them went to Finland and other parts of Europe because there was going to be martial law. The country was going to collapse. The economy was going to collapse. People couldn't go to McDonald's. Well, and also because they were horrified at the war. A lot of it was also like moral outrage. Gotcha. There are principles involved as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you're right that they're coming back. So is Russia basically back to normal now? It depends what part of Russia you're talking about. But as cynical as it sounds, the places that really matter, like Moscow and St. Petersburg, the two capitals, everything's fine. And everybody I've talked to there says you would never know if there was a war on. The restaurants are packed. The cafes are packed. Anything you want in the stores is basically there. Some of the stores still have like old stocks that they're like inventory they're still going through. So you're not really noticing shortages yet. Prices have gone up a little bit. It's harder to fly to Europe because you now have to like a friend was flying from Moscow to Italy, uh, which he did for work all the time. And now it involves uh, an overnight layover in Dubai, right? Because of all mm -hmm. the airspace mm -hmm. that's closed to Russian planes. But at the same time, one of the reasons they're coming back is that immigration is hard. Like finding your place somewhere else is hard. Finding a job is hard. Putting your kids in a school in a language they don't know is hard. And when they're hearing that nothing has changed in Moscow and that it's all looks the same, feels the same, you know, as long as you don't go out and protest, Everything they were saying reminded me of what America was like 
during the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my friends in Moscow said, you know, there's no change in our lives here in Moscow. The war is just on TV. And I was like, wow, that's how it was in the U.S. too. If you weren't from a military family, if you didn't know people who were deploying and dying or coming home injured, which a lot of us in the big cities didn't because there's a certain contingent both in Russia and in the U.S. who volunteers to fight in these wars and to serve in the military, we never saw it, right? And it was just something abstract that we didn't maybe didn't like, but it wasn't affecting our day to day. And and I think that also has an effect on the politics and on how long a war like that can last if nobody gives a shit, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. One thing you also noted uh, in your story about uh, what it's like in Russia right now is that people can use this courier service, which I hadn't heard of, called SDEK. Stick. And Russian soldiers were using it to send home looted goods from Ukraine like some like private courier. And then people in Russia are now using, or at least the the woman Katya you interviewed is using it to order clothes from H&M. So people are, people are basically like able to bring the goods that they don't have access to in Russia over the border. It's starting to happen that way. But just a quick backstory about Stick. It's a uh, courier service. And it was one of the ways that we learned about all the looting that Russian soldiers were doing in Ukraine. Ukrainian hackers hacked their database and saw where these Russian soldiers were sending things in Russia. And then they mapped them out onto a map of Russia. And it's just like this, just like the dots are everywhere, except for like Moscow and St. Petersburg, because that's not where the soldiers are from, obviously. But, you know, these, these soldiers are from very poor places. This was especially in the suburbs of Kiev, which were quite affluent. And so they saw, you know, these amazing washing machines and electric scooters and televisions and like catalytic converters, whatever they could get their hands on. Then they would go across the border to Belarus, send them via deck. And you could see them also through the CCTV footage from those offices was also hacked. And we saw a lot of their faces. It turns out, I mean, there's a lot of conversations now about all these middlemen sprouting up. And I, and I think this happens when any other country is sanctioned in Iran and Cuba People find a way to get what they need. And there are not just rumors of some of these Western brands coming back to Russia and opening, reopening their stores again, but also just straight up middlemen, you know, like Zara can't sell whatever dresses in Moscow because it would look bad and might violate sanctions. But some, you know, Kazakh middleman who buys a bunch of this stuff in Spain and sells it for a markup in Moscow they're not violating anything. Mm-hmm. And also because I think a lot of the closures in Russia in those first weeks of the war of Western businesses closing up shop was not about sanctions. Like they were not required to do that. A lot of it was over compliance. And it was all about sending a message and like a marketing thing. It was like, you know, how companies put out Black Lives Matter statements in the summer of 2020. And then, you know, a year later, two years later, it turns out they didn't do anything about it. So now I think a lot of them, because they're not banned from being there, it just might be harder to do business because of all the banks that have been disconnected from SWIFT. Mm -hmm. I think some are going to start coming back and uh, some are just going to start working through middlemen. I want to take a quick break, Julia, and then we'll be right back.
the hook of your piece is this uh, woman, Katya, you interviewed who left. Like we said earlier, she was panicked about what Russia was doing in Ukraine. She had objections to what they were doing. And like a lot of, you know, people in Russia, she was afraid. She comes back. So for the people who are quietly coming home to tie up loose ends, maybe they're moving back, whatever. Like, does the FSB care? Like, do immigration authorities care? Mm. Like, in other words, like if you left the country and, and then tried to come back, that feels like something that would make Vladimir Putin cranky. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I don't know that most of these people have not had issues, uh, not at least not the ones I've talked to. I actually forgot to put this in my piece, but the Russian state is kind of advertising how many people are coming back. And their estimates are wildly overinflated. They're saying that if you track the Russian SIM cards that left Russia in the first two weeks of the war, 80% have come back, Wow. which I think that's inflated, but a lot of people have come back. Uh, I don't think they're getting visits from the FSB unless they're posting stuff about the war. One of the interesting things that's happening is like there's a, there seems to be a lot of guilt among those people who have come back. I mean, it's all perfect for Putin. This has caused a lot of infighting among these groups, these kind of cosmopolitan, educated, globalized Russians who don't like Putin. They all now kind of hate each other. The people who left condemn the people who stayed and are saying, like, just by staying, you are tacitly supporting not just the regime, but the war, and you're complicit in it. And they're saying, like, you should be out in the streets protesting. And the people who stayed are like, fuck you. You left. You're safe. I don't remember you going out protesting and risking, you know, 15 years in jail. You can't tell us what to do. You're not living in the kind of danger that we're living in. And a lot of friendships have kind of fallen apart over this, which is interesting. And it's, again, very perfect for Putin because now there's even more infighting and factionalism within the opposition. Speaking of things that are going well for Putin, and this is the last thing I want to ask you. I think uh, I read in the New York Times last week that despite the sanctions against Russian oil and gas exports, the surge in prices around the world has, you know, flooded Russia's coffers. Like Russia's oil revenue has soared in spite Mm -hmm. of the sanctions. Russia earned what is very likely a record 93 billion euros in revenue from exports of oil, gas, and coal in the first 100 days of the country's invasion of Ukraine, which is exactly what sanctions from around the West were trying to prevent. So this is an ugly question to ask, but if people are going back to normal in Russia, quote unquote normal, the Kremlin is making lots of money still from oil exports, like have the economic pressures um, that were put on Russia failed? I think uh, the economy is going to slowly get worse and worse. I don't think it's going to stay like this forever. But I do think the oil and gas revenues really offset it. And the fact that everybody wants a carve out and the fact that countries in Europe really still depend on gas from Russia. I mean, this was something I heard talked about in Europe too, is like, what happens this coming winter? They're still not, they're not ready. It has not been enough time to prepare the infrastructure. And people were asking like, are we going to have heating in Paris this winter? How are we going to heat our homes? And just as the war has receded from the headlines in here in the States, it has also receded in Italy and France, in the UK. One friend who lives in Italy told me there's a bit of a compassion fatigue. I mean, that's what Putin's been counting on, right? Is that they need him and 
nobody really cares about Ukraine. That's the calculation he made. And that eventually he'll be able to have his way. If Europe says no to Russian gas, that's a problem for Putin too, right? Like he depends on them as much as they depend on him. It's a two-way street. But so far, yeah, it's not It's not really working. Yeah, you don't get that vibe. But, you know, mm-hmm. at least we might get a gas tax holiday here. That's cool. That's cool. Julia, thank you so much. Welcome home. We're glad to have you back here. All right. Talk soon. Talk soon. Now let's take a quick minute to check in with Ben Landy, our executive editor at POC, to see what's going on in his world right now. Hey, Peter. It's been a crazy week in our newsroom, but here is one story I want to flag for listeners. The biggest news out of Hollywood has been the shakeup at Disney. Bob Chapek, the CEO, sort of unceremoniously fired Peter Rice. That was his number one content guy off into the ether. That generated a lot of speculation around Burbank that Chapek had basically executed a potential rival for his job. Amid speculation about why Chapek would fire such a senior executive, Disney's board issued a statement saying that Chapek and his leadership team have the support and confidence of the board. And the board putting out this statement expressing confidence in Bob. Have we seen anything like that since the whole Florida debacle? Well, look, um, I think it is really notable that the board put out that statement so quickly. Clearly, they wanted to tap down on any concern um, about any uh, lack of confidence in JPEG given such a high profile departure. Then you've got other voices inside Disney that have tried to spin this competing narrative that actually Rice was just secretive and controlling, difficult to work with, and that this was just a culture fit issue. Sure, why not? But the truly mesmerizing thing about this whole saga is that for whatever reason, Wall Street seems to have total faith in Chapek. Maybe it's because he's more of a numbers guy than a talent guy, like Bob Iger, his predecessor, but nearly every single research analyst on the street says Disney is a buy. This is not investment advice, but it is revealing that for whatever mess Chapek has made of various micro scandals over the past couple months, what really imperils an executive more than anything else is the company's stock price. And Wall Street, for now at least, still has confidence that Chapek is the guy to lift the share price back up. Finally, I want to offer three predictions for the Sun Valley Conference next month, which is, of course, the annual hotspot for media deal-making in Idaho. One, our very own Dylan Byers will be ubiquitous, so put some time on his calendar now if you want to break some M&A news. My second prediction, for all the conversation about whether Disney could potentially spin off ESPN in the future, I think Bob Chapek needs to wait for the economic storm to pass before revisiting that. It might make long-term sense right now, but every company has to be thinking about cash flow. ESPN is a big profit engine for Disney, and dumping a status-defining asset like that right now, I think is going to look like a sign of weakness. And lastly, I wonder if we'll see some movement from David Zaslav to fully offload the CW or other entertainment assets that have been non-profitable for Warner Brothers. Zaz has got a big debt problem on his hands, and there are smaller rival streamers out there that are still looking to bulk up. That is the kind of one plus one equals three thinking that Sun Valley loves. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 